ask for your mercy as we stand before you and as we read your word and as we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide our hearts, help us to understand, help us to apply the truth of the resurrection to our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I was explaining to Randy the other day that I have a tendency, as a lot of you know, to because of a background in technical writing and because I taught in the industrial trades for years, I have a tendency to take the machine apart and label all the parts and explain how it all goes together and forget about explaining how the machine works and what you can do with it. <coughs> uh, well, that's fine if you're writing a manual, but that's not what we're doing. See, so last week I deliberately chose to avoid all the sensationalism of, you know, all the nitty-gritty of the physical torment the Lord went through and the emotional impact it had on the people of that time and the emotional impact it has on us today. I chose to avoid that and try to mainly just treat the facts. This is what happened. This is what Jesus did and why. And some application, but mostly we're looking at the facts. I was tempted to do that again this week, but I realized two things. One, that in the first place, <clears throat> while last week I could pretty accurately, chronologically go through, this is what happened leading up to the cross. This is what happened up to Jesus' death. Um, it's a lot harder to do that on the resurrection. For one thing, the main event, as Chuck likes to say, happened when nobody was watching. You know, remember when they opened up the tomb, it was already empty. Jesus was already resurrected, so nobody got to watch that happen. Unlike Lazarus, where he came, I don't know how he got out. It says he came out and he was bound hand and foot in the grave cloth, so I guess it was like a potato sack race. Uh, I mean, his hands and feet were tied, and he still came out. So you can imagine that, but that's still as close as we ever get to seeing what God did there. It's difficult to lay out exactly chronologically what happened first and second and third and so forth in the resurrection, partly because four different evangelists told the story. John, in particular, focused only on the experience of Mary Magdalene, and he didn't even mention the fact that there were several other women there. He didn't mention the fact there was more than one angel. He talked about the one angel she talked to and mainly focused on her experience and Peter and John and so forth. But <clears throat> the others uh, spread out from that and talked about the other people that were there, talked about the fact there was more than one angel and so forth. So since it's so difficult to lay out exactly what the facts are, even though they're there and we're going to do our best to briefly touch on the facts this morning, the big thing here is see how the machine works and what it'll do for you. What is the resurrection about and what effect should it have on our lives today? What effect did it have on the people at that time? So the effects of the resurrection because of the facts of the resurrection is what we need to focus on today. <clears throat> so what are the facts of the resurrection? In brief, <clears throat> the facts are as follows. After Jesus died, and that means after the spear was pushed through his side. He was already dead before that happened. But after Jesus died, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus that was in John chapter 3, <clears throat> asked Pilate's permission to take down the body and bury it so they could bury Jesus' body. He was surprised to find out Jesus was already dead because usually that's a pretty slow way to die, real slow. And he called the centurion and asked for confirmation. Is he, that guy already dead? I said, yeah, 
Yeah, we, we, we're going to break the legs like you guys told us because, you see, the Jews didn't want these guys screaming during their religious service that day. That was the Passover. You don't want a bunch of guys screaming and messing up your party. So, break their legs. They'll die faster. That's what they came out to do. Jesus was already dead. Why? Because the scripture says that no bones of his would be broken. Okay. The other fellows got their legs broken, died in a matter of minutes right after that because they couldn't push up to breathe anymore. <clears throat> it would have lasted for days, screaming in agony. He confirmed that Jesus was already dead when they got there. So Pilate says, fine, take the body. And Joseph and Nicodemus took the body and wrapped it in fine linen, soaked in a mixture of myrrh and aloes, both of which are tree resins that partly smell nice, that partly have an antibacterial uh, property, and, and they harden eventually into a, a shell mixed with the cloth, almost like fiberglass. Not that hard, obviously, but, uh, but the same principle. It doesn't harden immediately, it has to dry. Um, but that's part of the purpose of what they're doing. It's, a, it's an old means of embalming. They didn't get done. They only got part of what they hoped to do done because they were running out of time. The Passover uh, evening was about to begin. The Passover causes a Sabbath regardless of what day of the week it lands on. So the Sabbath they were anxious about right then was the Passover of the Sabbath. Excuse me, the Sabbath of the Passover. There was another Sabbath immediately after that on Saturday. Now we, I know because of the the Catholic traditions and stuff, we talk about Jesus dying on a Friday. He did not. One of the prophecies that Jesus gave before he died, clear back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, he says, an unbelieving and adulterous situ uh, uh, generation asks for a sign and no sign shall be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah for as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the King James says whale but it's it actually just means a sea monster a great sea creature some translations say a great fish so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth now you can pack three days and three nights between Friday evening and early Sunday morning Man, you must be really good at that new math. It doesn't work. Look at a calendar. Back up from early Sunday morning before daylight, so it's still Saturday night, technically, and the tomb was already empty. Back up from that. You end up with Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. You have Thursday daytime, Friday daytime, Saturday daytime. Saturday night began at sundown. <clears throat> And that was the end of the Passover. Excuse me, that was the end of the Sabbath. The Saturday was from sunrise to sunset. It was the, the, the Sabbath. They couldn't do any work. And any time after sundown Saturday, Jesus could have left, and he had his three days and three nights, which is why when they opened up the tomb, he was already gone. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. So not all Sabbaths are on a Saturday. But all Sabbaths have a similar effect. They can't do any work. Passover is one that's a Sabbath, no matter when it shows up. Um, Day of Atonement's another one. There's some others that are, that are Hebrew feast days that cause a high holy day, a, a Sabbath, regardless of what day they come on. <clears throat> so meanwhile, the priests got permission from Pilate to seal that tomb. 
and he gave him a guard of Roman soldiers. I'm told it's 16 soldiers. I don't know if that's true. And their, their point was to keep anyone from stealing the body and claiming that it had been resurrected because they knew that, that he had prophesied that he'd be raised from the dead. And they thought, well, they're just going to steal the body and claim he was raised from the dead and keep this cult going. So they sealed the tomb and left the soldiers there. Now, three days and three nights later, the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday days, total of three days and three nights later, just as Jesus had told them, some women showed up at the tomb. We're not told how many. We're told there was at least two named Mary, there was another woman, and then it says some other women. And it, there's at least four, maybe five women, or maybe more, uh, that showed up at the tomb. As far as we can tell, Mary Magdalene was the youngest of the group. <clears throat> but when they got there, they found the tomb was already empty. Now, there's where it starts to get confusing because angels were involved at several levels. Um, John follows the story of Mary Magdalene, and he only tells about one angel. Uh, there's at least two in the other Gospels. Uh, the other women saw two, Peter and John, I'm not sure if they saw any at all. It was a real interesting little spin there where people got revealed different things at different times. So what was the effect of all this? Well, the immediate effect, let's talk about the Roman soldiers. They got real excited to see the resurrection. No, they didn't. <clears throat> when the angel appeared and rolled the stone away and sat on it, they passed out. They became as dead men. And that was early. That was real early because by the time the women got there, the soldiers were gone. And the tomb was empty and the women didn't know what had happened. So <clears throat> Mary, who was apparently the youngest, the most active, turned around and sprinted back to tell Peter and John because she thought they're the closest to Jesus. They, they ought to know right, right now somebody stole his body. And that's what she told them. She says, they've taken his body away and we don't know where they put it. That's all she knew. The other women were a little slower in getting out of there, and the angel appeared to them. And some of the passages say two angels. There was uh, one inside the tomb, one outside. Some just said two angels. See, none of these things disagreed. They just told the story from four different points of view. Uh, and the results are kind of spectacular, actually. The other women were still there, an angel appeared to them and told them, Jesus is alive, you're looking for the living among the dead. Go tell his followers that Jesus said he'll meet him in Galilee. So they turned around and started toddling back to Jerusalem. It wasn't that far, but they were a little older, taking a little longer. <clears throat> they didn't get partway there, and Jesus appeared to them on the road, confronted them face to face, told them, okay, I am alive. Go tell my disciples to meet me in, in Galilee. So they were pretty excited by the time they actually got back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> but in the meantime, two of Jesus' disciples, Cleopas and another one that's not named, had taken off hiking down the hill to a little town called Emmaus. Uh, we have a book that we sometimes give out here called a Str The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus because, as you know, Jesus appeared to them on the road and did not identify himself. He asked them, what are you guys talking about? He said, what do you think we're talking about? So what, what? Don't, are you a stranger or what? Don't you know what's been happening? He said, what? And so they told him what had happened. And they're pretty confused. They say, some women say that the grave's empty. and We don't, we don't know what to think. He says, 
you guys aren't too bright. He says, oh, fools and slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Shouldn't the Christ have suffered these things? He said he was going to do this. What did you expect? And he taught them. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, beginning in Genesis, he started showing them how Jesus had showed up in the Word of God from the very beginning. Not just the prophetic places where it said, this is the Messiah, he's coming, but the ones where he showed and where he showed up in person. Who do you think Abraham was talking to? He addressed him face to face and called him the judge of all the earth. In John 5.22, we find out that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. He says so. So he started teaching them that way as they walked on down to Emmaus. They persuaded him to stop and eat with them. And as he broke the bread and blessed it, they realized who he was. And the moment they realized who he was, he disappeared. And they decided, forget dinner, we're running back to Jerusalem. And they ran seven miles uphill from Emmaus to Jerusalem. Why? To tell the other disciples that Jesus was alive. <clears throat> Meanwhile, since Mary had gotten to Peter and John before those other women who had seen Jesus, Peter and John didn't know he was alive either. And Mary had told him somebody stole his body. So they went sprinting down to the garden of the tomb. <clears throat> and John got there first and was standing outside looking in and saw that the tomb really is empty. Peter catches up, barges right inside, and sees more detail that the napkin that had been on his face is folded and set aside and that the winding cloths that they'd wrapped him up in with all that goop was just an empty shell. There's not, nobody there. Undisturbed, but empty. Starting to get the hair on the back of your neck to raise a little bit? See, this is the kind of stuff they make movies of. Only in this case, it's the real deal. John believed right then. Peter walked away shaking his head. He didn't know what to think. Mary had come back to the tomb also. She evidently got there a little after the men did, but then after they left, she stayed there still crying, not knowing what to do. <clears throat> she was devastated by the loss of the Lord in the first place, and especially now, this apparent desecration of his tomb was just a horrible thing for her. Just the, It capped all of her misery. So she's standing there crying, and she heard a voice saying, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She hadn't looked. She thought it was the groundskeeper, and she says, Sir, if you've taken him someplace else, just tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. Well, of course, it was Jesus. He says, Mary, she turned around. She spun around to see his face. He said, Rabboni. Uh, you can look it up. It means my master, but it's the most, it's the closest, most like term of endearment that a disciple could address their master, their disciple with. And Jesus warned her not to cling to him. He hadn't ascended to the Father. And there's a lot of controversy around that verse, but we're going to move on from there. He instructed her to go and tell the others that he was ascending, and she took off to go tell them. <clears throat> Someplace in here, Peter, excuse me, Jesus appeared to Peter privately and dealt with him. Peter was having a special problem. You remember, he's the one that had sworn he would die for Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you won't. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to say you don't even know me. He says, no, I never would do that. But he did. 
So he's in a special grief. He's lost the Lord and denied him. He felt like he was completely unworthy to even have him as his friend anymore. <clears throat> so someplace in there, Jesus met Peter by himself. It says that in both in uh, Luke chapter 24 and in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, I think. Then Peter appeared to the disciples on the way down to Emmaus. And see, this is all happening very close together. Jesus appeared to the disciples on their way down to Emmaus, talked to them. We already talked about that. But then when they recognized him, he disappeared. And they went running back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. Well, a seven-mile run uphill took them a little while. <clears throat> By the time they got to the room where all the disciples were finally back together, uh, Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Well, the, the other disciples told them, yes, he's alive, he appeared to Peter. And they said, yeah, he appeared to us too. And Jesus appeared in the room with them. <clears throat> this was late Sunday evening, by the way. He appeared to the 11 disciples there, and he spent some time there with them that evening, confirming their faith and establishing their security in the fact of the resurrection. They still thought maybe it was a ghost or something. He says, look, ghosts don't eat. Give me something to eat. And they gave him some fish, some honeycomb, and he ate that. And they, they handled him. They put their hands on him. They, yeah, he's solid. And they, you know, this is the place where Thomas had told the others, I'm not going to believe it unless I poke my fingers into those nail holes. Jesus says, put him there, buddy. I don't want you to be unbelieving. And Thomas says, no, no. I believe now. You're my Lord. You're my God. <clears throat> so he spent some time there working over their relationships and making sure they understood he was really alive. Over the next 40 days, he taught the disciples and prepared them for his final exit from this world. We're going to spend some more time on that in the coming weeks because quite a bit happened during those 40 days. <clears throat> but he ascended 10 days before Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 11. And they saw him leave. So what what effect, and we saw what kind of effect he was having on the believers, what effect he had on the unbelievers. Uh, what effect should he be having on us today? Because that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? We're at a little bit of a disadvantage. Our faith can't be on a personal experience of seeing the resurrection or seeing Jesus with the fresh holes still in his hands or any of that. Uh, we didn't see the crucifixion personally. We didn't see the resurrection. We didn't know anybody personally who saw the resurrection. So we feel like we're at a bit of a disadvantage. <clears throat> the fact is, though, nobody but the Lord saw the resurrection. When, when I, I frequently started an Easter lesson asking, why did the angel roll the stone away? And so the weakest see the empty tomb. Jesus didn't need any help getting out of there. He was gone. He could have blown the whole mountain away if he'd wanted. He just left, walked through the walls. He's perfectly capable of that. And that's what he did, by the way, when he appeared to them in a locked room. He showed up physically. Maybe that's where those Star Trek guys got their ideas. Beam me up, Scotty. Nah, probably not. But Jesus could do that, you see. Nobody but the Lord saw the resurrection. They all saw only the effects. And we are also called to place our faith 
in the fact of the resurrection and look to God to bring the full effect of the resurrection in our lives. <clears throat> now Paul says that if the resurrection is not a fact, there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus is not resurrected, then our faith is vain. He says, you're believing in a dead man. He's powerless to save. If Jesus isn't resurrected, he's not the Messiah. And you put your faith in the wrong person. So but the fact is, it is real. <clears throat> the resurrection is a fact. We can see that in the transformed lives of the disciples. They went from being terrified defeated men and women they were hiding in a locked room for fear that they were going to be the next ones crucified transformed their lives a couple of weeks later pardon me i'm getting the hiccups breakfast is still talking to me <clears throat> just a few weeks later they were fearlessly preaching the gospel preaching the name of jesus in jerusalem and not just one, but all of them were. It says that they, the whole group were speaking the mighty works of God and the variety of languages that those people that were in Jerusalem had brought from the nations they lived in because every year at the Passover and at Pentecost, the people would come from all the nations they'd been scattered to and share there in Jerusalem. And by that time, which is hundreds of years after they've been scattered into those countries, that was their home language. Hebrew is kind of maintaining touch with home in Jerusalem, but their home language was the languages of all these other countries, Scythians and so forth. Uh, and that's the languages. These disciples all started speaking the mighty works of God in those languages, real languages, human languages. And the people were hearing it and said, those guys, how can they know my language? Remember, some people said they thought they were drunk, and they said, no, they're not. They're talking my language. That's, that's, they're not drunk. They're not babbling. And Peter spoke up and preached the, the word of God. We know that. That was the effect. <clears throat> you see, people don't do that kind of thing for something they know is a lie. If they're that scared that they're going to be the next ones tortured to death, and many were, if they were that scared that they were going to be the ones tortured to death, and if they thought that the resurrection was a falsehood, they would keep their mouths shut. They'd get out of town. They'd pretend they never knew Jesus. But quite the contrary, they threw their lives on the altar of God's love, and they spent their lives telling other people how they could have eternal life, and that they could have eternal life now. They don't have to wait till they die to find out if they made the team. You can have eternal life today. Jesus said, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is crossed over from death into life. That's a promise right out of Jesus' mouth. Down through history, millions of people have done the same thing. They've entrusted their eternal soul to the one who has the power of eternal life. And we who have believed his promises have seen our own lives changed as well, to one degree or another. My wife was raised as a believer. She was a believer when she was nine years old. I was an atheist until I was 18. So yeah, there was going to be some changes. Some of you are raised in a real godly Christian home, some in a horrible background. But the fact is, no matter who you were, you started off as a child of Satan. God says so. He says, you're of your father, the devil, and his works will you do. John chapter 8, verse 44, if you, if you don't believe it. And we had to have our lives transformed. We had to be born again. We had to trust Jesus as our Savior. 
we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that the resurrection was God the Father's stamp of approval, declaring that Jesus truly is the Savior he claimed to be, that he truly is God in the flesh. He truly is the one chosen sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. In both Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1, it says that the resurrection was God's stamp of approval. They, he declared with power that Jesus was the, the Son of God. <clears throat> and because Jesus is truly re resurrected, we can look for and confidently expect his presence to be manifested in our daily lives. Here in the church, we've very frequently seen the evidence of God's hand on even just our church services. There's things that have happened here that we think, whoa, we couldn't have planned that if we'd wanted to. <clears throat> we engage with him on a personal level, not just theoretically, not just in our imagination. He wants to deal with us. He wants us to deal with him as personally as Mary Magdalene did there in the Garden of the Tomb. Now, that's hard to get through my head, when I read it, I can hardly read without crying because I can imagine how she must have felt. But he wants us to get that close to him too, that we're broken down by the, by the awesomeness of his presence and that we're not stuffed full of ourselves trying to prove how wonderful spiritual people we are because you're not, nor am I. See, we're made of the same mud that the disciples and Mary Magdalene and all the rest were made of. He wants us to be as thrilled by his presence as were the disciples on the road to, to Emmaus who when they finally recognized him, they ran the seven miles uphill back to Jerusalem. Why? To tell the other disciples. Did you get that? They were thrilled by the resurrection and they ran to tell. You see, that's supposed to be our response too. We need to see his face until he becomes all that thrills our soul. There's a song that we used to sing called All That Thrills My Soul is Jesus. I think the title might be Who Can Cheer the Heart Like Jesus, but the chorus says All That Thrills My Soul is Jesus. He is everything to me. And he wants to become that to us. He wants us to be, he wants to be all that thrills our soul, and he wants our strongest desire to be to go tell that news to anyone that will listen. And see, because he's written, because he's risen, I meant to start off our sermon here with he's risen, so you guys could say he's risen indeed. But because he's risen, because he's risen, we have eternal life guaranteed to us. His promises are good. He has declared us righteous on the basis of his completed work at the cross. But when we see the word in the scripture justified, it means declared righteous. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, being declared righteous, being justified therefore by faith, we have peace with God. He's already declared us righteous. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's because he's risen that that's a fact he's promised that we're going to be with him and like him throughout eternity. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, we've already been res resurrected with him. And I, right there, I started thinking, what, when? And then, you read the rest of the verse, Ephesians 2, 6 says, you're already seated in the throne with him. 
Now, that's hard to grasp, but there it is. It says it right there in black and white. Romans, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Furthermore, in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, it says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's true because of he is risen, it's because of the resurrection. And all the positional truths in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, became true of you the day you placed your trust in Jesus' shed blood at the cross for your salvation. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you were placed in him by the Holy Spirit. That's your new position in him. And the things that are true of you because of that are called positional truths. They're true of you because you're in Christ and you're placed in him permanently the day you trusted him as your Savior. And that means that all those positional truths that are listed in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 are now true of you because he's risen. What are those positional truths? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's read through them. There's 15 things listed in those few verses in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. At least 15 that I found. One is that God has already blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember, it's in Christ. That's your position in him. Number two, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Did you know that? The day you trusted him as your Savior, it became true of you that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We have a hard time with that. A friend of mine explained it to me this way. He says, Chet, you came up to a wall, your sin that blocked between you and God, and you found a door that says, whosoever will may come. And eventually, for whatever reason, you went through that door and came inside. Later, you got looking around and wondering, how did I get here? And you look back to see that door, and you found out that on the inside of the door it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. Number three, it says that you are holy and blameless before him in his love. Number four, you're predestined to be recognized as a full heir of God. Number five, you're predestined to, ful predestined to fulfill the good pleasure of his will. You may not feel it some days. We're not basing on this on feeling. These are facts. Every one of these is a positional truth. Every one of these is a fact about you. Number six, you're predestined to be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Number seven, you are already accepted in the beloved. Years ago when I was uh, 19, I think, and in a school training commercial fisherman, one of the other ruffians that I was in school with said something to the effect, you better not do that, you'll be knocking on heaven's door. Some of you remember a song from about 50 years ago that had that phrase in it. I said, I don't need to knock, I'm already accepted there. He says, you are, huh? And I said, huh? That's as far as I ever got with it, but I'm already accepted there. God says so. Number eight, you've already been redeemed through his blood. You're not waiting to be redeemed. You have already been redeemed. God says so. Number nine, you've already, you already have full forgiveness for your sins. Some of you are still groveling around trying to get God to forgive you. If you place your trust in Jesus as your Savior, he says you are already fully forgiven in Christ through his blood according to the riches of his grace. Number 10, God has already abundantly blessed you in his wisdom and prudence. 
Number 11, he's already made known unto you the mystery of his will. One piece at a time. But yes, God has been making known to you the mystery of his will ever since you were born again. Number 12, your inheritance in him is secure. You can't get disowned. I had a lady arguing with me about this one time for years it went on. And, and I finally asked her, so under what circumstances would you abandon or disown any of your kids? And I knew some of her kids were adopted too. She says, none. There's no circumstance under which I would abandon or disown any of my kids. I said, so what makes you think you're a better parent than God is? She says, I never said that. I said, you sure did. Because you've been claiming all along that if you sinned enough or if you didn't serve enough that God was going to disown you or abandon you. And you just now told me that under no circumstances would you abandon your kids. So evidently you think you're a better parent than God is. That sobered her up. And a few weeks later she told me, she said, I think you're right. I, I believe now that I'm fully accepted by God. She was quite elderly. She died not long after that. But she died in peace knowing that her Heavenly Father was waiting for her. Because all her life she'd been taught, if you don't work, 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 then God's not going to keep you. <clears throat> Your inheritance in him is secure. You will eternally be to his glory and praise. That's number 13. Number 14, your position in him is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Having been placed in him by the Holy Spirit, it happens to be that you're already sealed in him by the Holy Spirit too. You can't jump out, you can't slip out, you can't be thrown out. Jesus said, whosoever cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. How's that? Number 15, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment. King James says earnest. The down payment of the rest of the glorious inheritance promised to you. You're absolutely secure in Christ because he says so and because the Holy Spirit is your guide your guard, and your seal until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's you, by the way. He purchased you by his blood, and he isn't going to lose you. Now, all of these truths apply to you as a believer, whether or not you're consciously aware of them. You may not know some of these things. I didn't know them for years. But they're all true from the moment I trusted Jesus as my Savior. They're all true of, true of you whether or not you're even personally walking with him. If you're out of fellowship, well, that didn't change these truths. They're true. You're just not getting the, the benefit of them. It's not helping you any because you're not focusing there. You're not living your life there. But all these things are true of you, and they're all true for one reason only. It's because he is risen. Jesus is alive. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you transform our lives by your presence, by your Holy Spirit, by your written word applied to our lives. Make us the men and women of God that you've called us to be. Fill us with the joy of your resurrection and lead us to walk with you in the newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.